Welcome to the new podcast slash interview series by My Dear Kitchen Helsinki blog. This is a project that I wanted to do for a very long time. I've always been interested in social, cultural, and political aspects of food, and I wanted to reach out to people in Finland, researchers, practitioners, activists, and any other food-related people to discuss their works, the topics that emerge around food, current situation, but also future projections. In the near future, or later on, the location of the guests may extend beyond the borders of Finland, but my priority, at least for now, will be to see the local picture. I start this interview series with Australian researcher and my good friend Shona Candy, who has been in Finland for a few years now and has been conducting her postdoc research in the University of Helsinki. I chose her to be my first guest because her work is related to sustainability and sustainable food systems, and this is a topic that I'm most interested in. Also, as this is my first interview after a very long time since I last did such a thing, I thought our friendship would help me be more comfortable with myself. Hope you enjoy listening. Okay, well, first of all, thank you for you know accepting the invitation. And uh, I know that the academic year started and you're probably very busy already. <laughs> so within that busy uh, schedule, I'm really happy that you could have find, you know, time for this. Um, so yeah, I, I did have an introduction, a very uh, general introduction about you before this, uh, but I would like to ask you if you could introduce yourself uh, briefly, your background, your education, your current position, and your general research uh, topics and research areas. Okay, so yeah, my name is uh, Shona Candy. I am a postdoc researcher at uh, with the Helsinki Institute of Urban and Regional Studies at the University of Helsinki in Finland. Um, I am not Finnish, I'm Australian, and so most of my previous research has been done kind of looking at the Australian context with result, with, um, with respect to kind of food and sustainability. So um, my background is actually as an engineer. Um, my PhD was in... Um, engineering but looking more at the kind of socio-technical system so I was looking at appropriate technologies to improve um, food and nutrition in remote regions of Nepal but uh, since so I kind of brought in not just not just looking at the food and production side of things but also how the cultural aspects related to food and and food technologies and things like that so um, uh, I have my research experience has been, first of all, I've looked at um, the Australian food system on a, a national level from kind of a sustainable perspective, looking at different potential uh, scenarios. So we looked at like a business as usual scenario, but we looked at alternative scenarios like with alternative diets and, and things like that. Um, and I've also done work more recently looking at um, sustainable food systems at a city regional level. So with the Foodprint Melbourne project. And, uh, and so that was delving a little bit more into the detail um, rather than sort of a broader overview. It was um, really looking at in a particular context in a particular city, considering linkages with all these other aspects of the food system. How do you feed a city sustainably? Yeah. Um, and so now uh, probably my research has shifted slightly again. I'm still got a bit of an urban focus. There is still a food focus. Um, 
However, my most recent uh, research project is looking at um, actually using food growing areas in cities, so urban allotment gardens, as a potential tool to reduce urban segregation, to build social capital and social inclusion. So that's one we're just kind of beginning now. So it's kind of shifted away very much from, I suppose, the production side of things, even though my previous work wasn't really only on the productionist side of things. We also looked at the socio-ecological aspects of the, the food system. But this is probably going more into the, the social, um, more heavily into the social than, than I've done before. Okay. Well, so that's kind of where I'm at now. This is this part is especially very interesting for me. This, the social uh, aspect of it, and um, but you you so I want to talk to you about today this whole food system, the global food system. Um, but I want I want to start with um, according to you. I mean, we know that our food system is broken and has a lot of problems. Uh, which may probably we cannot discuss all right now. But according to you, what are the most important problems uh, of the current food systems right now? Um, well, what what I look at, there was, um, I think the, the biggest problems with our food system are what our food system goals are. Mm. And that then drives the rest of it. So there was a really interesting uh, framework developed by... Um, uh, another researcher whose name escapes me right now, but they talk about two aspects of a resilient food system. So when we talk about sustainable food systems, sustainability is a bit of a goal, mm -hmm. you know, uh, of, of a system, whereas resilience is a characteristic of a system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also like you could have a sustainable food system that's, in some people's interest, that's not very, very resilient, right? Just say you had an extremely efficient one kind of at the moment, which uses very little resource and this, but is it like, is it resilient? So resilience is like a, a property of, of, of your system. And I think they, you can't have one without the other. Mm. So that's when I think about what, what kind of system we want is very much driven by what are the goals of that system? I think now the goals of our system our global food system is economic profit. I think that's the main goal. Um, I don't think the goal is feeding everyone. Um, feeding some, maybe who can afford it, but I don't think our goal is fit. And until that kind of goal changes, as well as I think we need to, and that's driving everything else in the system that's driving this extractivist kind of mindset where we just take um it's kind of driving you know it's in driving the environmental degradation related to the food system it's driving um the social impacts of the food system so people not having enough food i mean you, you talk about the, the really interesting um like donut economics from uh, kate rayworth where they talk about you know keeping within environmental limits but also um, addressing the social foundations and the social foundations is having enough food. The environmental limits is not um, destroying the environment on which we rely to grow food. Mm. So that's, that's a really interesting point kind of thing about that. And I think to achieve that kind of happy, like safe operating, safe and just operating space for our food system, we have to change the goals and the goals have to be sure economic profit can, 
come into it. I mean, if we think about, you know, the, the three pillars of sustainability, they say social, ecological and economic. But at the moment in our food system, we don't have the social and we don't have the ecological. Uh, not on a, not on a, it's not, not on a broad scale, right? Um, and so I think that we have to look at changing these goals, but then what goes hand in hand, and they, they talk about in this, uh, in this concept, they talk about that as like functional diversity. What are, what are the functions of our system? But to achieve this functional diversity, we also need response diversity, which is diversifying our, our food system away from just big companies owning up all the land and kind of dominating the whole food landscape. Mm. So I think I'm not all, I know there are some people who are very much about local food. It's all about local food. And there's other people who are very much, oh, it's global. You can't, you can't do it without global. But I think there's got to be a mix. Yeah. We have to have a diverse food system because we don't know what's coming. We have some idea with climate change and, and look, we got caught out also with um, co the COVID-19 as well. You know, that really challenged some aspects of our food system. So I think a diverse food system is a resilient food system because we then have, we have built into our system, we have a plan B, we have a backup mm. or a number of backups. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, when you said about the, the, the local versus a global or mixture, I, I completely agree, but especially during this time, which I, I would like to slowly dive in this <laughs> time, I read a lot about how informal uh, local uh, food exchanges or uh, economies are we can you know help people more with yeah. their food and um, so I, I but uh, there is also the existing global part of it so I do definitely agree well, that we can't just do this or that yeah. uh, basically what they did is they helped to fill the gaps yes I think and there's another great example of that um, which was in 2011 in uh, Brisbane, in Australia, there were floods. Mm. And um, so what happened was like roads in a, in a major city were just completely cut off mm. and people couldn't get through, deliveries couldn't get through. What happened was a really interesting case in that the, the bigger food actors, you know, like the supermarkets and whatever, they, they couldn't get their trucks through, right? But the smaller like uh you know veggie box delivery and the smaller operators could they had a bit more agility and flexibility but what happened was the bigger ones could identify where there was um like a lack of food with their systems because they had these great big systems yeah. and then the smaller um kind of food system actors or the smaller delivery people could actually deliver the food to where it was needed so there was it was a really interesting of of like um, local and well regional maybe even global I don't know you know big and small actors acting together in a crisis to basically achieve this goal of feeding people yeah and all this the flexibility that you know when you when there's the crisis and when there's you know there's a problem that you can easily uh, in, in, do an intervention on that yeah. Uh, yeah when you just have big very global actors uh, well, the thing is, it was interesting because the, the big actors had these systems that could identify where things 
were lacking, you know, where there was a shortage of food. And so it really was this combination of these kind of broad overview systems, but also with these smaller actors kind of moving around. And this is, that's what diversity is. You've got to have, you've got to have both. Yeah. So um, now that we started talking a little bit of the whole uh, COVID-19 situation, um, so how do you think that uh, COVID-19 affected right now the food system and what do you think is waiting for us regarding food system due to this whole crisis that came with uh, corona restrictions and everything i i think it really laid bare our reliance on labor right and labor particularly in the developed world where that labor comes from Mm. so cheap labor so i think definitely in finland you know, where they often fly in. They have agriculture, they have food growing in Finland. And actually, Finland is a pretty food secure country. Yeah. Um, even considering climate and everything, it's, it's, it's pretty good. They grow a lot of stuff. But in the, the, the high season, you know, when they actually, because Finland's a rich country, they don't have people who, well, again, this like drive for economic profit, they, they get cheap labor from other places. And I think what coronavirus showed us was that that's at, that's, that's at risk. We might not, it's, it's the movement of bodies and the movement of people that it really stopped. Mm. And, and I think for all our farming machinery and all this kind of thing, there are a bunch of things which were just needed to be picked by hand. Mm. And that human element of, of labor in the food system was really laid bare and shown to, I think the, the fragility of the system relying on that cheaper labor from other countries. Yeah. In, but also, you know, those countries relying on the income from, um, from wealthier countries where they go to pick because I think there were like Ukrainian people who, Ukrainian workers who came to, to pick fruit, but it, for a while there, they didn't know if they'd make it. Um, like the berry harvests were really at risk. Yeah. And, and that really showed, and I think also just a recognition that people who work in supermarkets are essential workers um, and that, that they are necessary in a crisis, but they are also at risk in a crisis. And, they are, and these are all some of the lowest paid jobs around. And I think what this crisis is, is really, it's, it's about labour and it's particularly about our reliance on low paid labour for people to be fed, which I think links back to how much we value food um, and how much we're willing to pay for it. I think food is probably um, kind of pretty cheap in our day and age compared to, you know, in the past where food would usually take up a much larger part of a family's uh, like budget or, or, you know, time. And now it, it isn't, we, we, we spend our money on other things, but we still want cheap food. Yeah. And this, this, this drive for cheap food is driving a lot, and this is coming back to this economic goal, economic profit, this drive for cheap food um, is really, uh, it's, we're seeing it with the coronavirus, what we're relying on to get that cheap food. And I think, um, I hope that we'll start to rethink mm. those, those arrangements um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's tricky because 
the foreign workers need the work. So you're not going to cut out foreign workers, but there has to be some other, whereas say a local food outfit, you know, there's like in Finland, Omama, Mm. they had, I think they had more people picking or something because they, you know, people were in lockdown and they, you know, so they went out, they picked food, they had volunteers. And so they were actually, they were actually doing really well and they had no worry about, about labor. Sure. They're a much smaller outfit and these local food producers, they don't, they don't have that reliance on say foreign labor, Mm. Um, but they're more expensive, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I even saw uh, some, some friends doing voluntary work, like from my own uh, network. And it was interesting to see, like, I mean, I'm also, I was, I, I couldn't do any of those, but I, I followed my friends and it was also good to see that those berries and everything are not rotting themselves away. Yeah. Uh, and it was also interesting, I found the advertisement in Finland for when they were trying to get labour to pick the berries, like Finnish labour. Yeah. And there was this like idyllic kind of picture of, of a, a, a woman and a man standing in a field. It was sunny. They were wearing overalls, you know, but that's not the reality of berry picking. Yeah. You know, fruit picking is hard work. Mm. Yeah. And I also think the, the, the Finnish farmers would prefer the foreign workers because they actually do it better. Mm. You know, it's delicate. It's hard, but also delicate work in a way. So I'm thinking, um, Wait, um, um, so there are many different uh, projects happening or many, many problems uh, occurring, especially uh, in the global south. But then uh, we think that, you know, for example, Finland is, is quite food secure or, or Europe in general uh, or, you know, global north uh, in a better situation. But actually there are uh, also many problems uh, in global north as well uh, but uh, but but then there are lots of food movements especially grassroots movement, movements um, starting emerging from uh, local communities in global south um, so i'm not, i want to ask and very very exciting projects are happening so i want to ask um, what can the global north, who who is thought to be quite food secure, um, learn from uh, all these things, exciting things, exciting things happening in uh, the global south? So I think what the global north can learn from the global south is sort of how it's necessary to have food as a central part of our lifestyles, and also that food is it's not just a thing to be produced and consumed, that there's cultural aspects around food. It's a, it's a multifaceted kind of issue or, you know, and also that a lot of the projects in the global South, are, yes, they're about growing food, but they're also about community building. Yeah. And I think with the upcoming challenges that we're facing with climate change and particularly in cities, um, we need to build community somehow. Um, that's uh and and that and i think food is a really important tool for how to do that because most people like food everyone sort of you know they they need to eat it every day um yeah and it's uh yeah so i think there's definitely particularly in cities where people are really losing their um their connection with food um and uh also 
was I saying? Um, like in the COVID-19 crisis, there was, um, I think we really show, it really showed that there was lack of community. That if there were many people who were quite, quite lonely, definitely in global North cities, whereas perhaps in the global South, is there a stronger sense of community? Um, would, um, you know, would you have a community, someone to bring you food if you're sick? That kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot that can be learnt from the Global South, probably or hopefully also in my project, um, whether it can also bring about in better social inclusion and social capital building. Mm. And that's really important for social sustainability. So I want to ask you some, a personal question uh, about your relationship to food. When you came, well, I'm also a foreigner and I came here 10 years ago and I remember how hard it was for me, even though I wasn't very just, I wasn't keen on just, you know, Turkish cuisine or anything. I was open to trying new things. And, you know, I, I always cook my own food, uh, but it was hard for me to, to find the right ingredients, like which olive oil, which what. So it was a very big, big learning process. And I, I'm not sure, I, I, I do believe that I couldn't at first maybe, um, get the healthiest food myself because I wasn't sure what was what. Uh, luckily, mm. the school started and then there was some school, uh, at least in, at lunchtime, there was school uh, lunch. So, yeah. Um, so, and, and you came from, uh, how, how long has it been now? Two years. Two years. So yeah. you came also like from all the way from Australia and it mm. is also uh, still a, a different culture and uh, different ingredients and everything. So what kind of change did you have to go through? And, you know, did, did, what was, what did you have to get used to and uh, the problems mm. you had when you first came here? Yeah. Well, I had to get used to shopping at a supermarket again. Mm. because I had pretty much set up my life because I was a local food system researcher. I would go to this local small greengrocer in this environmental park near my house, or I'd get a lot. I knew people who, who delivered veggie boxes. So I pretty much all my, a lot of my fresh stuff I could get um, that I knew came from good sources because someone had already done the homework for me because this grocer was an organic grocer. It was, you know, and I also had things like um, they sold things in bulk. So I, I could also avoid packaging, you know, and, and so I pretty much had my, my life. It was, a, it was pretty sustainable. I could get stuff that I knew was from local producers and, and they had what was in season. So I didn't, I didn't have to do any extra work. Yeah. I also had a vegetable garden in my old house because of the different urban forms um we had a vegetable garden and i grew not heaps of stuff but i had lettuce growing i had broccoli growing i had tomatoes in summer um i had um, eggplants all those sorts of things i had just growing in my garden and i could just go out and pick them herbs too whereas getting here um first of all i don't have a backyard yeah. and second of all the climate i mean i can't grow anything i don't know what to grow when mm. so it's another thing of me getting used to not only can I not grow anything, but by growing things, I knew what was seasonal and the seasonal things are completely different here because what will grow in winter in Australia won't grow in winter here and might grow in spring or summer, you know? And so I had to relearn when I tried to eat seasonal. I, I also didn't even know who the local producers were 
And so I had to figure that out too. Um, so it took some time. So I had to get, and, and a lot of the stuff I still have to get from a supermarket. And then that raised all sorts of challenges because the certifications are different. Uh, you know, I try to go for organic and fair trade. And, and in the end, it, apart from just the translation of knowing what things were, um, it, it also was like when I was trying to shop responsibly, it took a whole lot more effort. And another thing was certain ingredients. Um, like one example is the, uh, you know, the long, thin eggplants. Yeah. I used to cook with them all the time. You know, they were pretty cheap. It's definitely in summer. You know, I, could, I, I made really nice stews. One of my sort of staple foods that I would make, I made with them. And I found them once. And I think, like, they cost me like 12 euros or something. It was, it was really expensive. And so I had to rethink, oh, God, how am I going to get that you know i'm not going to make that yeah and also some some spices that i would normally get because uh, melbourne has a really big um like spices and herbs melbourne has a really big vietnamese community and i like to cook vietnamese food and finding the the fresh spices fresh herbs and things like that um and it took me a while to find where the shops were um i also make uh nepali food and some of the um again some of the spices like finding black mustard seeds i couldn't find them in the supermarket so i had to i found them at a market accidentally so kind of now i know where i can get them but yeah it took time do you go to ethnic markets in itakeskus or in hakaniemi or I don't know. Yeah, I went there in Hakaniemi. I went to a, a market in Hakaniemi, and that's where I found this guy had like all the spices and dried herbs. Mm -hmm. So, but I mean, it's also another thing. Like, I would just have herbs growing in my garden. Yeah. And big, big plants. I was very good at growing basil, and I can't seem to get them growing the same here in pots on my balcony because sunlight. I mean, it's more built up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Speaking of growing your own food, I mean, as, as you also know, all these allotment gardens and, you know, uh, some, some people have even tiny cottages next to it. Yeah. And, you know, some people just have some, some space, like, I don't know, one meter to one meter space. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. uh, I have some friends who have a little bit of space in these. Do you think, especially regarding, I mean, the climate and everything, uh, would, could, could people actually survive on what they grow on these kind of uh, or get a lot of uh, their need from these things or I mean more like a hobby or some kind of in between yeah some, uh, we did some interviews with some gardens and gardeners and some people did say they got a lot of their vegetables um, uh, from their plot but I imagine not much happens in winter so yeah. I don't, I guess winter, if you wanted to eat fresh veg, then you wouldn't. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's, I think as much as people like to talk about the virtues of urban agriculture, the fact remains there's a lot of people in a fairly smallish area in a city and there's usually the land is given over to other things other than food growing. Mm. So um, I think it would be very difficult to get all your nutritional needs knowing I mean, I've studied diets. We're supposed to eat five serves of vegetables. You might get all you want, but you might, I doubt you'll get all you actually need. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I was back, back on your other question. Another thing was um, learning new things uh, with coming here. Yeah. I'd never cooked turnips before. 
Okay, yeah. And I and when I joined this local food, I got this local food delivery like bag service. This oh mama, I got all these turnips, and for a while there, I had no idea what to do with them, and so I had to look up a recipe and work out how to cook them, and you know, so it it was, yeah. I wasn't just trying to adapt my old habits. I was also learning new ones. Yeah, I think I also learned uh, to cook, to taste uh, many of many root vegetables only yeah. coming here. Although I, yeah. I've always been a very vegetable person, you know. But but my uh, diet was also a lot about with you know delicious eggplants and and zucchinis yeah. and whatnot. But then all these. Um, this lump too and um whatever like now i can't remember but all these to get yeah. to like well i don't i didn't even know what they tasted like and i had to learn no. and about same with turnip i'd never cooked yeah. turnip yeah. <laughs> um but then then again personal but then going back to COVID-19 and I know a little bit about uh, the, the answer to that question, but how did the COVID restrictions affect your relationship with your own relationship with food? It, did it affect anything? Did it change somehow your consumption, uh, what you buy? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I definitely built up my stores of food because mm. I was trying to, I was, I was worried because I'm, um, I'm a single parent and I thought if I got sick and I needed to isolate, like even if I didn't need to go to hospital or anything like that, but I needed to stay home and I wasn't allowed to leave my apartment for two weeks. So I started to store a lot more food. Mm. Um, so which much more than I did before, because I was always like, yeah, just pop to the supermarket. No problem. You know, I can just go and get this, my weekly shop. I also was sort of reluctant to go to the supermarket because I was really worried about getting sick in the first place. Um, but what I did discover through uh, a list that our friend Timo put up was these, um, I, I delved more into the local deliveries. Mm. So um, there was what, um, what's it called? Express. So it's like a, it's a, they normally they deliver just to a pickup point. I'd already been engaging with the recording markets, but I think they stopped. Mm. And then, but then this delivery thing, they started doing delivering to your home. And um, and so I got into those, and I started to discover. Oh, there's this local dairy, and then the you know there's this this local thing, and there's this local thing, and I can, you know, and and I was like, oh, okay, I want this to continue mm. after the pandemic. I want to keep ordering food from. It was it was tricky in that um, it would it wasn't very consistent what was sometimes available each week. I don't know whether they would sell to other suppliers or, or, or what, but um, yeah, I couldn't one week. I was like, Oh great. I can get all these things. I mean, I got reindeer meatballs, you know, it was, it was good. Yeah. Um, but then the next week, some of the things weren't available. And so I was like, Oh, I'd planned on that, but I couldn't. So it, it meant thinking again, planning around everything, not being available. Um, and I think also I started to, really think a lot more. I got stuff in my food bag, like from Oh Mama, so dried things, which some of the things had been sort of accumulating in my cupboard because um, I hadn't quite figured out how to cook yeah. with them yet. Like, uh, what was it? Um, like broad bean, pow like powdered broad, dried broad beans. Like I'd never, and I Google translate, couldn't even translate what that was. <laughs> and, um, and so now I've learned, oh yeah, I can put that in like, 
a pasta sauce or something instead of meat. It's like a protein thing. So I, I learned how to cook with things that I hadn't quite had the time to look up and investigate yet. Okay. So I think, yeah, there's, there's definitely, and, and it meant for me, um, I got out of my reliance on the supermarket a bit more. Okay. That's, I think, I mean, I don't want to associate COVID with so many nice things, but it is something uh, new and good to, you know, a, a nice behavior change or a new. Yeah. Behavior. I also was really, I mean, what they say is I also really thought about the, you know, the vegetables in my diet, for example, for immunity. Mm. So fiber is really important for immunity. So, and, and um, iron, and they said that COVID-19 affects your iron. So I was like quite careful, much more careful than normally uh, normal of managing like my iron levels and that of my, my son too. And, and making sure we had, yeah, lots of vegetables every week because I was really concerned. It was concerned about staying as healthy as possible. Yeah. So, yeah. So just a final uh, question uh, and also like um, kind of, um, I know that, you know, apart, like, apart from food, I mean, I know you personally, you're my friend. So um, I know that you, Apart from food, in, in many different aspects, you're trying to lead a sustainable lifestyle. Uh, so for the, for the listeners, uh, in this very current time regarding the whole corona and possible new restrictions and everything, and I'm talking mostly about, uh, you know, listeners in Finland, especially because we, we know our situation best. Uh, regarding food, or if you want also a little bit more uh, other topics what are do you have any recommendations for the listeners to have any more sustainable lifestyle or uh, yeah i mean uh, anything that you can that comes up to your mind and also to finalize do you have any other things to add to our discussion yeah i suppose um i, I would probably recommend if you want to live it more sustainable lifestyle you actually have to put a bit of time into it and a bit of bit of thought a bit of research but i think it's initially a bit of a barrier to do that but it's worth doing it in the end um and be a conscious consumer so try to you know work out where where your food is coming from and being aware of who picks it um, what conditions are the animals or, or what, what conditions are the workers in who pick your food? And is that, is that okay? I mean, I remember when I was, um, I was vegetarian for sort of three or so years and I kind of was like, well, you know, I really want to only eat what I could actually be happy to kill myself. Mm. And, uh, um, and so I was like, oh, fish would probably be okay. I think I could kill a fish. I could do that. But I don't know, a bigger animal? Probably not, you know. Um, so I kind of applying that kind of logic, what, if you knew everything about it, what would you be um, comfortable consuming um, based on your kind of morals and ethics? Um, I also think, um, I don't know if this is already happening, but I think about, you know, we having um, dinners with friends, you know, we, we do this with our friends and it's actually a really, really important thing. And this is congregating around food um, where 
food it's not just about the eating of food it's 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 about the sharing of food and talking and being together in the same place which um you know i think the lockdown really showed us how much we missed that <laughs> so um so i think we need to value that more um and the 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 importance of food in bringing people together because i think we're going to need our resilience mm. a lot Yes, we're going to need our food to be produced sustainably and consistently and stuff, but we're also going to need our social resilience because I think the coronavirus is just one challenge and I think more are coming. And to sort of be proactive about building community so that you're actually in a good place for when, when life gives you lemons. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, thank you again. And, yeah, and I was really nervous to start <laughs> because it's been my first interview after many many years. But uh, I enjoyed it a lot, and mm -hmm. um, so good luck with your new research, and uh, I'll be happy to follow it. Thank you. <laughs>